From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Coming up this hour, Archbishop Ron File Enright, Chief Exorcist with the Sacred Order of St. Michael the Archangel, will be here. He's performed countless exorcisms over the last 30-plus years, and he'll reveal, among other things, physical and mental signs that you or someone you know may be suffering from demonic possession. In the second hour, when ufologist Stanton Friedman passed earlier this year, he left behind a treasure trove of information, files accumulated over more than five decades of research. Well, Grant Cameron and Victor Vigiani will be here to discuss the contents of those voluminous insider files. And then towards the uh, tail end of this transmission, the co-hosts of Reverse Speech Radio, Christian Dicadieu and David John Oates, will join me live in studio to discuss an upcoming reverse speech event happening here in town. In fact, uh, David John Oates just arrived earlier today from Australia. Again, they'll be uh, live in studio sort of last order of business before we dim the lights. All right, we're going to discuss the holy ritual of exorcism. From the early 1980s, Archbishop Ron File Enright has been involved in a not-so-popular ministry called exorcism. He was trained by many exorcists over the years who were his mentors and former bishops. With over 30 years of experience, he established an order of exorcists called the Sacred Order of St. Michael the Archangel. As a Catholic priest for... Again, over 34 years, he's interacted with angels and demons. He and members of the order are available by appointment for demonic investigations, exorcisms, house blessings, and other religious rituals. Archbishop Ron File and Wright, welcome aboard. How are you? Oh, pretty fair. Thank you for having me, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. So when we say when we say that this is not a, a popular ministry, uh, what do you mean by that? I, I, I mean, assuming you're talking about the way that it's perhaps uh, perceived by what the mainstream media, etc. Or, I mean, because I would think you know that exorcisms would be extremely popular today for a number of reasons. You know, you would think so. Um the ministry of exorcism is actually a specialty. It's something that's not taught in the seminaries. Uh, when a priest receives his holy orders, he's taught a whole slew of things, but the ritual of exorcism is not one of them. Um, to do this, you have to, if you have a calling, you have to consult your bishop, and your bishop would point you in the right direction for training. And then, even then, there's a few years involved. Uh, before you're actually appointed an exorcist, either in a diocese or a parish. When I say uh, popular, I mean in demand, because uh, from everything that I'm reading uh, these days, it, it seems like uh, possession is on the uprise. Would that be a fair assessment? You know, I, I've been hearing that lately, and I have, of course, my own opinion, Um and that is that um, I believe that from day one, from the time that Lucifer was thrown out of heaven, fallen to earth, along with a whole bunch of fallen angels, I believe from that time on, when they started to 
interact with human beings, I believe that the cases back then are probably the exact same amount of cases that are occurring now. The only difference is is our ability to actually track them with our modern technology. We could track information around the world. We want to make an inquiry in regards to how many exorcisms are actually done in the country. We have the technology to zoom in on that and make an assessment. But I'm going to say, and again, this is my opinion, I believe that um, that the amount of exorcisms that you hear today have always been the same. It's just our reporting system has been updated, and so now we see how many there actually are. Fascinating. Would it be also fair to say, because as you say, they don't teach this in seminary, it, it almost seems to me like the church is somewhat, Im- I don't know, embarrassed? Is that the right word by this this whole thing? They don't want to talk about it? It's all very hush-hush? I think that uh, it's a subject that is very uncomfortable because it's, the, it's a dark subject, a very dark subject. In fact, it's a subject that most clergy, um, unless they have a, a certain interest, would probably shy away from because... It doesn't highlight the wonderful, joyous, abundant life that you could have through Christ when you're talking about demons and demonic possession, demonic infestation, demonic oppression. All these things are very negative. And for a, pe- a preacher to sit, uh, stand behind a pulpit and start teaching these things, it would be, uh, it'd be a, not only a major distraction, he'd probably lose most of his congregation. Most of the parishioners would probably want to go to another church where they talk about the, all the wonderful things about Scripture and all the wonderful things um, that are actually um, all about God. But when it comes to the dark side, when it comes to this dark scenario we're talking about, very few, very, very few ministries will actually teach on it and or instruct upon it. That's why I, I say it's a specialty. Um, a majority of the victims that come to my organization are people that have been turned down from their local parish. They have, um, and, and the only reason I, I could come up with is, is most of the um, bishops and clergy, um, they subscribe to the new concept of uh, psychological evaluation. They've come up with, um, which is true in, in one sense, that demonic possession actually mimics mental disturbing or psychosis. So as a result, um, a lot of the parishes and jurisdictional bishops, they're subscribing that these problems were problems that exist hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. And so the scenario is different because now we have our, our new medicine, we have a new way of diagnosing an individual who displays um, strange behavior, and we can put a label on it, and we'll call it a psychosis. And so now, you know, now most of the um, clergy, if you will, are, are now educated in the science of healing through medicine. And so they're more likely to, uh, to give that kind of information now, opposed to talking about demons and and the supernatural so in, in other words the the local parish when someone comes to them and and says i i i i'm having 
some problems or my, someone I know is having some problems, we think we might be possessed or whatever, they're more likely to dismiss it as some sort of a psychological disorder and refer to them to a psychologist rather than to the, the exorcist. That's exactly true. The reason being is that the majority of the parishes are not equipped with, uh, with the training and, and, and understand a person has to be appointed to the position of an exorcist and they have to be clergy. And there's very few people that happen to fall in that category. So, therefore, it only stands by reason that the amount of, of dioceses and parishes around the, around the world, actually, uh, very few are actually trained in this area. Even though the Vatican does have a training uh, session that goes on for cl- uh, clerical and for laity, uh, they have a, a course uh, in, in exorcism, or rather in, in the demonic. But even then, that's not enough training. What happens is you need to have a mentor who is a bishop, who is experienced, who's maybe up there in years, and who pretty much knows what's going on and, and gets it. And as a result, the uh, the priest would um, would be assigned to a mentor. The mentor uh, would take him on as an assistant, and he would be in training for several years. Some, uh, some I would say, two years, some four years. And... Um, for myself, it was four years. So after the fourth year, okay, you've been exposed and actually have hands-on experience in regards to the uh, ministry of exorcism. So therefore, you're in better position to um, to do this ministry and be appointed as an exorcist. Does the Vatican have a chief exorcist? Yes, they do. And uh, but again. You know, it's like uh, they're overwhelmed. Um, there's very few priests that are, uh, as I said, trained in this because it's not a real interest. You know, we're talking about a very dark subject. We're talking about something that could actually take over your entire being, where the personality of the demon can actually manifest in that individual. It's a horrible thing, a scary thing to, to talk about. Right. Um, something that you will not hear. In, in, uh, and preach behind most pulpits because it's a dark subject. I, I do want to get into the protocols with you in, in terms of evaluating someone because that's important. But first, let me ask you how you you got involved. In, in, as you say, it, it wasn't taught in the seminary. How did you get the calling to become an exorcist? And, and a person who is called to be an exorcist has to be called by God. It's a divine calling. It's a supernatural event that occurs in one's life. When God actually calls them to this ministry, in my case, it was done at a very early age. I'm 10, 11 years old. I was in the in the bathroom taking a shower, and this bright light just appeared out of the window, and it just illuminated the entire room. It blinded me for a second, and then at that point, I like to think that I, I like to describe this as my my vision, if you will. I saw myself much older, and in a Roman collar. That's the clergy shirt, and not as an exorcist, but just as a priest. And I was um, basically a parish priest. At that point, um, when the years went on and I decided to uh, receive holy orders, which is the ordination ship into the priesthood, um, at that time, I wanted to follow my divine calling. So I consulted my bishop, who I knew was an, was an exorcist, and he was like, you know, in his 60s. And I asked him if, the, uh, if, if I could perhaps maybe learn and, and become part of this ministry. 
And at that point, he assigned me to a bishop who, again, was much older than I, and who's been in the ministry for over 40 years, and he was an experienced exorcist, and he uh, just happened to need an assistant. And so there I was. He was my mentor. He became my mentor. At that point, I stayed in training for about four years. And in the interim, um, I was um, had a hospital uh, church ministry going on. I was servicing about four or five convalescent hospitals in Glendale at the time, Glendale in California. Uh, and so um, at that time, after the fourth year, and this is after several hundred um, episodes of experiencing the actual ritual of real, genuine um, people that are possessed by, by the demonic, um, I um, I mean, I saw so much in the very beginning. It just simply took me over the hill, almost to a point where I had to kind of stand back and say, did I really, really want to do this? And then, of course, my calling... Uh, it was a, a pretty strong one. Anyone who's called by God, believe me, it's a, it's a calling you, you tend to follow. Um, so anyway, um, uh, make a long story short, um, I was elected, appointed as, uh, as the, uh, as an exorcist for my bishop's jurisdiction. And then at that point, um, as I was helping and still assisting, I even, even though I was appointed, I was assisting other exorcists who were my seniors. Um, we started to receive more and more calls from uh, from parishioners who were stating that they were having problems in the, in the family unit. People were in their in their family were acting strange. It'd be strange behavior. They'd be doing things that would be strange. Things in the house would be um, kind of spooky in one sense because things were starting to move by themselves, and things started to appear and disappear in certain parts of the house. So they, they were very concerned, and so they decided to consult with the church, and they in turn referred them to us. And at that point, um, we would send a group of investigators to actually make an assessment based on the information that they were willing to give us. And uh, this is a, a very long process, which I could explain to you. Um, if you have the time, we certainly will. Uh, I, I do want to get into the into the protocols, but I just had um, a couple other questions regarding your training. Sure. In in addition to sort of on the job training, and you're assisting in these actual exorcisms, uh, and I also want to touch upon you know what you actually witnessed. But uh, are you also, I don't know, research, researching about various types of demons, and and are you taking a, a course in in actual demonology? No, no, no. That's that's something an investigator would do. No, no. Our main main focus is in the individual to, to make a determination as to whether or not it is a true, genuine case of demonic possession. And if it is, we have to make a clinical assessment. And that means that a psychiatrist is involved, a healthcare professional is involved. And then, of course, all of our investigators are professional investigators. They will um, make notations. They they will uh, pick up the psych evaluations along with their health records. They would collect all the information along with doing research on the individual to find out more about who they are. Uh, because sometimes there are different... Uh, just because someone claims that there's some type of demonic thing going on, it doesn't mean that it truly is. 
So what we have to do is go the extra step and make sure that we are addressing the the actual problem because if we don't and if the person is psychotic all this can actually push them right over to the point of a psychological break yes. which could lead into a suicide right so I mean, this is why it's so important that the assessment is done and it's you know it's not done like like um it's not like a 24-hour thing it this whole process takes about three four months, depending as to how much information we have in the assessment. If the psychiatrist, if they have their own doctors, we have to wait for their reports. Everything's a waiting game. And then if, if we're trying to do some additional research on the house, on the location, uh, even on the town, um, you know, the city, uh, we have to, uh, you know, our investigators look online. They look for articles uh, regarding if there's any articles regarding this individual that uh, that we have taken on as a victim. And um, so, I mean, there's a whole lot of investigation going on. It's not, you know, done in a, in a drop of a hat. We have to actually go through the proper steps. So and only after all... Done, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, once all those steps are done, then it's still not over. Because then we have to... They have to submit it to me. I have to go through it. I have to make an assessment. I have to wait for the reports from the psychiatrist and from the and the, from the medical doctors, and then if the psychiatrist, um, you know, I have to get some kind of um, recommendation that this is in fact something that's beyond their scope of specialties and beyond their scope of logic, and they're totally lost as to why this individual has come to these symptoms. And based on those recommendations, I take all of that stuff and then make an evaluation. Now, in my layer, if you will, I have all of these hundreds, maybe a few thousand CDs. What do you call those? Floppy disks. We used to call them. (laughs) That's pretty old technology. (laughs) You have lots of documentation to go through, yes. Oh, yes, a lot. But each of those disks represents a case that has been evaluated and where the assessment was actually recorded. And as a result, whatever is on that disk is not just uh, information, but behind that disk is something more which can be awfully dangerous. And I could tell you more about that uh, if, if you like. Yes, we are rolling into a break here in just about a minute, but let me just ask you, you had mentioned earlier that demons and a possession can mirror or mimic a psychological disorder. So could it not be the case that the psychologist has said, yes, we think we know what this person, you know, this is uh, some sort of a psychosis or, or something, when in fact they've been deceived. And so they may believe it's a psychosis, but it's not. It's actually a possession. That's an excellent, excellent point. I've said this for many years. Who's to say that the person's psychosis was not first triggered by a demonic oppression. That's where the demonic plants a seed in someone's mind. And the person thinks that he's acting on negative behavior and it's his idea, not knowing that it was the outside influence that actually placed this dark seed within his mind. And who's to say that dark seed developed into a chemical imbalance in the brain and as a result he became, as we review, psychotic? Who's to say that the darkness is not responsible for that? And I got to tell you, Richard, I'm I'm on the side of saying, you know, it's very possible. And this goes for all our pains and all the mental anguish that we go through. 
all these things do not come from God. God is love. God is not about making us suffer. I believe the suffering comes from the source, and the source, of course, is the iniquity of Satan and all of his demons. All right, we'll take hypothesis. Archbishop, we'll take a time out. We'll uh, come back and we'll talk about the ritual or sacrament of exorcism on the other side. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Archbishop Ron File and Wright, my guest, and he is the chief exorcist for the Sacred Order of St. Michael the Archangel, and he um, is here to tell us about protocols and uh, the actual uh, ritual. Is it considered, a, is it one of the sacraments, exorcism? It is a sacramental scenario. It's not a sacrament, but it is a sacramental. So it's very important in terms of the process. All right, so during your training period, I mean, the first time you were in the presence or witnessed an actual exorcism, what did you see? Is it sort of the Hollywood stereotypical, you know, levitation, animal-type sounds, uh, speaking in strange tongues, all of these superhuman strength? Is all of that accurate, or is that Hollywood? A lot of that plus some are very accurate. Let me start with just by telling you that if you've ever been in the city morgue, it's really cold, and, and they have that for a reason. They have a bunch of slabs with dead bodies, cadavers, and you have this eerie feeling as you walk by them. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Uh, Thank God, Richard. no, not so far. Thank God. Okay, well, well, maybe you should visit your city morgue just for the experience of it. Just walk by the bodies that are laying on the slabs, and as you do, you will notice something that's really interesting. And that is that, well, first of all, all the bodies are covered with a sheet, but you could still see the outline of who they were. And as you're walking, you could actually smell a certain scent that may be coming from one or all of the cadavers that happen to be in that ward as you're walking by. And when you do that, I want you to imagine what you might feel like. Now, that's the feeling I felt when I witnessed my first dozen real demonic possession cases. I felt the uneasiness. I felt the presence of death. And the victim, though the victim was not covered with a sheet over her head or his head, but their skin was a very off-colored gray, as if you would see in a cadaver. And they almost represent what you would probably see in the morgue except one big difference, and that is the individual would actually say words. And in some cases, it's in Latin. In some cases, it's in other languages that they have never been taught. It's always insulting words in regards to whoever walks into the room. If there's a group of people in the room, the victim would look around and point to an individual and tell them, and when I say point, I mean with their face, with their attention, will go to an individual in the room and will say out loud whatever negative thing is going on in their lives. 
anything from affairs to doing heinous things behind closed doors. And it seems that the person, the victim, has insight knowledge of these things and would speak of them in front of the crowd, and that would weaken whatever role that individual has in the process of the ritual. If it's an assistant priest, if it's an investigator who's present, whoever the individual is, that includes the priest himself who's actually performing the exorcism. If the priest, the assistants, who reads and uh, they read the uh, the responses, or the investigators, and they're there to witness the actual event, because everything's done behind closed doors, so everyone is watching, and they could testify if cornered that this is exactly what happened, because it's a unique experience. It's something that you would never forget, and as I said, when the victim looks and focuses their attention to you, to the exorcist or any person in the room, they become distracted, so much so that the distraction is no longer on the victim but on themselves because now they're in a place in an uncomfortable position where they have to either come clean with all their secrets or just be humiliated. And it's going to be very, very bad, to say the least, to everyone that's involved, including the priest. So they demonstrate psychic ability. Uh, yes. What about levitation? We hear so much about that. In all the years I've done this, and in the 800,000 cases that I've actually been directly involved in in regards to demonic issues, I could say I've done about just over 2,000, and those are actual rituals. And in those 2,000, I'd say maybe I've witnessed about at least a dozen times people that would actually levitate. And that is that actually would come up from wherever they're laying. If they're, li- if they're lying on the floor, they'd come up from the floor and it'd go way up to the ceiling and they'd stay there. You know, they'd like defy the laws of gravity, if you will. <laughs> they would actually like be hovering just overhead. And uh, it's a series of prayers and focusing in on what is actually taking place. The focusing in would be where the priest would be largely responsible, along with his assistants and any of the investigators that are in the room, because everyone is praying. And so the individual would slowly, slowly come down. We had one individual that was up there for six hours, and no one knew really what to do. And uh, and as a result, you know, I'm standing there, another bishop who's an exorcist, he's standing there, He's never witnessed this before either. We've we've all seen, you know, levitation. We've never seen someone who would just stay up there. I mean, it was like just beyond our reach. That person's floating just, you know, just just below the ceiling. And, uh, and you talk about <laughs> something that really will, you know, will shock you in, in terms of, um, of, of, of of what's going, what's taking place. It, right. I mean, you mentioned it, it was life changing. Kind of yeah, I was going to ask you, is yeah. it? I mean, is it in a in a strange way? Is that faith affirming, or does it just? I mean, do you ever get used to that? Well, nobody really gets used to evil because evil comes in so many different forms. When you're confronted with the embodiment of evil, which would be the actual person that's possessed by the demonic entity, demonic spirit, and the demon is actually manifesting its characteristics and his personality through the person's body, it could really, you know, push you back quite a bit. 
no two cases are alike. So every case is totally different. You never know what to expect until you're in the room, until there's dead silence, and until you start opening your prayer book and start praying. Nobody really knows because anything could take place. In all the years, we've had some people that have passed on who've actually died in the ritual. We've had victims that have died in the ritual. We've had victims that died after, like several months after the ritual. There's a whole lot of things that, uh, man, and they're not really mysteries. We, we basically know what's going on in regards to retaliation of the spirit. And there's a lot of that that could happen. Things get a lot worse before they get better. So that means when a person has their hopes up, their family members have their hope up that the exorcism ritual will get rid of the demon and they'll be totally delivered. Well, yes, that will probably happen. But there is a real possibility of that entity coming back and repossessing the individual. If someone it has a lot to do with the individual and how they've changed their lifestyle. Because if they go back to doing what they were doing, they could be repossessed real easy. If someone passes away during the exorcism, what kind of investigation then goes on? Does the church then fall under suspicion? I mean, what happens? Well, first we call the police, the fire department shows up, you know, they do their investigation, they question everyone, you know, the whole nine yards. We never hide anything from the legal authorities. We can't do that. We have three psychiatrists, upstanding citizens. We have a lead investigator, and he happens to be a captain of a police department in Mississippi. And he is the lead investigator. And in his team, he has four members in his team that are police officers. So, you know, we try to be ethical in everything, and we have no secrets. The only thing that we keep away from the public is the confidentiality agreement that we make with the victim and their family. We hold that very sacred because what takes place in that room is so terrifying, can be so humiliating, can be so embarrassing. There are so many things that can go wrong. There are so many things that will go wrong. And as a result, these are individuals. These are real people. They don't want this to follow them for the rest of their lives, if at all possible. It's kind of interesting. You know, remember the movie The Exorcist? I was going to ask you how accurate that was. Yeah, I, I was part of the first movie of its kind that actually zoomed in on certain things that were actually pretty accurate. But if you notice, it was based on a real person who was actually a boy. Yes. And to this day, he's alive, and his identity is still a secret. No one really knows his name, yet he's been alive for and still alive for some time now. Archbishop, I have to break away. Please okay. uh, hold on. We'll be back on the other side. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues right after this. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Archbishop Ron File Enright is my guest, and he is the chief exorcist with the uh, sacred order of St. Michael the Archangel. And he has performed, did you say 2,000 exorcisms? Just over 2,000. Hmm. And you were saying earlier that uh, The Exorcist, the movie, very accurate. You've witnessed levitations. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I say it's accurate. It's not It's not 100% accurate. It has a lot of things that could have been placed or put into the movie. But there's only so much that people could handle, especially if it's based on truth. Right, right. And you were saying that there have been occasions when the, the victim of the possession has died during the exorcism. What do they die from? 
Is it a heart attack just from fear, or what ultimately would kill someone during an exorcism? There's many reasons why one would die. Um, of course, heart attacks, that's definitely one. Poor health could be another. That's why it's important that we have medical records, not only psychological records, but medical records. Find out if the individual's a diabetic, if he has a heart condition, if he has any implants, if there are any other issues that could appear with a very stressful event. And then you have people in the room that have been known to just drop where they're standing and not believing and accepting what they're actually witnessing with their own eyes. When you do that, you have a psychological crash, you know? You can't reason as to what the heck am I looking at? I mean, is this real or, you know, and then you start wondering, and our brain is very a complex computer, and, and when it crashes, it will crash, and the whole body will react accordingly, which means you have anything from heart attacks, strokes, all kinds of uh, various diseases can you know, seep in. And that's why it's important we understand that the victim has a, a clean bill of health when it comes to a, right. a, a physical yeah. Do these demons name themselves? Their names are based on their actions, okay? And so, as a result, we have to learn what their names are. And when we do, then we um, we order them to leave the premises. We evict them, if you will. And we do that in the power of Christ, in the power of his name. Because we don't do that with our own accord. Our attention has to be for the victim, 100%. And just as God can see through us and knows exactly what our intentions are, so can Satan. And as a result, if you're not, if you don't prepare yourself for what could possibly be the most terrifying experience you'll ever have in your life, if you don't prepare yourself for that, then a lot of things could happen. A lot of things could go wrong. And as a result, it doesn't mean just the victim. I'm talking about the people that are in the room itself. So it's extremely important, you know, that we uh, that we follow the the protocol. Okay, so and that's exactly what we do. This is a short segment, so let's start now, and then we'll uh, into after the break we'll we'll get into it in some more depth. But let's start the conversation now. Let's talk about some of the the physical, mental. Uh, signatures of a, uh, an authentic demonic possession. Let's start with the physical. What changes? No, there's a lot of things that could actually go on at one time. It's not just one at a time. It's it's all the things at times. But we just go with the physical changes. Um, they it could be a person that will like demonstrate long periods of time without blinking their eyes. You know, it's all about the details. And that would be one of the many details. Um, the person can um, start speaking in different languages or with accents, you know, which are totally and completely far from from the victim or the family. The person can um, speak in tongues. That is, speak a lot of, not what the Pentecostals would call tongues, but a lot of gibberish can come out of the individual's mouth. Um, his eyes could change. His eyes could get very dark, like a shark, or extremely white. It just depends um, what we are actually dealing with. We've seen changes, uh, physical changes of the skin, turning into a, like a, a dry gray tone, and that's from head to toe. Um, individuals that um, 
but they know things that they should know, know people's histories, or know about history from um, 100, 200 years ago, or maybe even knows the history of every individual in the room, which is like really very startling to say the least. Some victims have written marks on their bodies where things are written actually like like it'll either be a number or a series of number or actually a short message. Like a scarring, a scarring, also, you mean? Yeah, scarring. Uh, it, it, some will appear to be like burn marks or welts around the skin area. And, um, and that's not from, from anything that... Um, that could be done in terms of, of self-mutilation uh, or anything like that. This is something uh, where it could be in an area where they can't even reach. Um, then you have hair coloring. The hair coloring can change. can change from red to white. can change from black to white. It could change from white to another color. Right. I mean, they're just lots of colors. What so about superhuman strength? They have that. Plus, um, they have the strength of of five individuals who would be their weight size. And it means that they could take an individual and literally throw them across the room. Um, that's not a problem. Restraining, you know, there's a, this is, and it sounds bar- barbaric, you know, when I say this and when people hear this, but but what we do is we have to tie the victim down to something because the person has tremendous amount of strength and wants to do nothing but destroy and and create chaos. So by bounding them, and again, I know this sounds barbaric, but this is a this is something that had, that's always been done in the beginning of time because of a lot of bad things that have happened in the past where they just simply attacked people that were in the room and many of them fatal. And as a result, you know, someone bites you in the throat, you're not going to survive that. So, I mean, you know, there's there's precautions that have to be taken. And that goes for, you know, if there are windows in the room, they've got to be covered. They have to be boarded if possible. They have to be covered. They cannot be any outside influences. We have to be totally focused on what takes place. So, yes, uh, they have tremendous amount of strength. Um, they could also, uh, there have been many cases where you can actually hear multiple voices come out of their mouth. There's like three people talking at one time. Oh, I thought we were talking about the federal election <laughs> coming up. <laughs> anyway, we'll, uh, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, uh, continue to delve into, uh, in all seriousness, a very dark and sinister topic, demonic possession. Stay with us. Beaming across North America, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Coming up in the next hour, Victor Vigiani and Grant Cameron will be here to discuss the treasure trove of personal files, UFO documents from the late UFO researcher Stanton T. Friedman. That's coming up in uh, hour two. And then towards the tail end of the program, the co-hosts of Reverse Speech Radio, Christian D. Cadieu and David John Oates, who has just arrived from Australia for a live event later this week. We'll tell you more about that. Uh, right now, Archbishop Ron File and Wright stays with us. Uh, by the way, how do people get a hold of you? 
uh, if uh, they are in the uh, or if they are in need of an exorcism. Do, do you uh, do you work in Canada as well? Actually, we do. We have an excellent bishop up there, and he has his own crew. Um, but let me tell you, uh, first of all, that I am and I have been retired. The organization continues, though. And as a result, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, they can join one of my seven forums I have on Facebook. And as a result, um, we're taking uh, people that are members of our forum are also members in the Order of Exorcists. Uh, all of them are clergy that are appointed exorcists, uh, a lot of bishops, a lot of investigators that have that actually have done our assessments for us. Um, they're all members of my forum on Facebook. My um, website is www.orderofexorcist.com. On that website, um, I have placed so much information in regards to um, various types of demonic um, issues that, that could come up, uh, as well as terrific information. Um, there are some radio links and some, uh, some TV links and, and things of this nature. Uh, but most of all, we have a really, really good, um, it's summed up as to what an assessment is all about. Why are some people targeted by demons for possession? Well, mainly because we're the creation of God. And all the purpose, the purpose for all the, the fallen angels is to um, make a mockery of God's creation. So as a result, we've become personal targets, every one of us. Anyone that has a brain and wants to better themselves and perhaps maybe open themselves up to the supernatural, they leave themselves wide open. Um, as I was waiting for your call this evening, I was watching television on YouTube, and I was watching this paranormal investigation crew, and it was quite interesting. One of them um, decided to bring a Ouija board and they, they went to the basement of this supposedly haunted house. And so they all stood around and played with the Ouija board, demanding that demonic entities come out. And as a result, um, this was uh, this was produced in the U.K. So as a result, um, I'm watching this, you know, and I'm saying, wow, that's kind of interesting. Because, you know, the individual that was uh, claimed to be possessed as using the Ouija board um, he was just basically overacting. I think he was just a, a really bad actor. And as a result, uh, the whole show was like basically cornered around him. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is there are so many charlatans out there. There are so many groups, and, and there are some very good, genuine paranormal investigators and paranormal researchers. Don't get me wrong, but there are a lot of them that are just charlatans that will make claims that, that where there's no basis, that uh, that these some of these individuals would call themselves an exorcist when in reality they're not, which means that they jeopardize the people they're trying to help, or at least uh, trying to service. Because let's face it, if you don't have a calling in doing this ministry, then you're doing it for yourself, which means that you're probably charging. You know, our organization does not charge for any services. We never have. We never will. An exorcism ritual is a ritual that, that is meant for us, people who have been called, to use it on individuals who have these terrible demonic issues. And it was freely given, and as a result, uh, as the scripture implies, 
we uh, freely receive, freely given. That's what we do. We follow the scriptures and we charge nothing, not one thing. Now you have people that are famous people out there that are uh, basically Protestant and they're charging for exorcisms as much as fifteen hundred a ritual. Um, and I'm and, and the only thing I could say, and again I strongly say this, though it is my opinion, is you have to stay away from these individuals. They're not even not only charlatans, but they're con men. They're trying to get your money. They're trying to do some type of advantages that would that would boast themselves up and and so as a victim you know you think your resources are limited and but really they're not all you have to do is pray that god leads you to the right group right church right organization that has a ministry of exorcism and an exorcist on pre- uh, present and a group of investigators i've just got to uh, I just have a, a few minutes here, Archbishop. Let me just fire off a couple of quick ones here, uh, and I'll have to have you back on because this has just been an amazing sure. conversation. Frightening, but amazing. Uh, have you have you actually seen a, a demon take physical form? What do they look like, if so? I've seen several demons. They look gray in skin. As I said, like, they look almost like they're victims. But the one exception is they all wear hoods, every single one of them. majority of them are transparent. They're very dark, very, very dark, silhouette type of, uh, of individuals. Um, and I've seen them in shadows where there's, where there's no way a shadow could be, could develop. It's a light, there's a light wall and nothing is casting a shadow, but yet their shadows will appear on the wall. And then you could see their shape and you see what they're doing as they're doing it in motion. It could be very, very scary. Uh, and maybe the next next time you have me on, I could talk about our ministry in these Skid Row hotels, where demonic activity goes on constantly. And I spent I dedicated 15 years of my life just on Skid Row hotels. Really interesting stories I could tell you. Would definitely have you back. Let me ask you this: This may be our final question. I almost hasten to add, or I almost hesitate to ask, but it has to be asked. Given the the power that these demons have. Is it possible for a demon, and have you ever witnessed a demon reanimate a dead body? I'm going to say no. I have never seen it. Is it possible? I don't really know, honestly. Uh, I've heard of spirits jumping into bodies and using their bodies for a, for a, for a temporary uh, period of time, but I have never really heard of a demon. Uh, if a demon jumps in your body, it's a possession. Uh, so, um, but um, in uh, any other term, um, you know, I, I, and, and for them, even for a demon to come and try to animate a, 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 a cadaver, um, it would be to his benefit because his whole purpose is to destroy each and every human being who is willing and ready to open themselves so he could uh, create mass uh, havoc and, and, and just totally tear you in from the inside out and push you to the point of suicide and hopelessness. Well, I'm, and, I'm actually thankful that the, your answer was no. Actually, I'm quite thankful. Yes, exactly. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, not at all. Uh, Archbishop, this has been uh, absolutely fascinating, and we will have you back on. We'll stay in touch, and uh, I thank Excellent. you very much. Now, very quickly, uh, by talking about this, are we? is there any danger we're opening ourselves up to anything? Should Should we do a very quick prayer to sign off? 
What are your thoughts? We could do that because every one of us are, has always been open. We still are. All right. Can uh, we but do, right now, yes. Can we do Do you have a, a quick heaven, one? Yes. I, I pray that you will uh, protect every person that has heard this show and that each person will understand that the reality of Satan is as real as your existence. Please bless each of us, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Archbishop. You're welcome. Thank you. When we come back, Victor Vigiani, Grant Cameron, two tireless ufologists talking about the late Stanton Friedman and his voluminous files. Five decades they've been accumulating. What's in them? We'll find out when we come back. <laughs> 